very often one might encounter all sorts of valid and, and powerful critiques of technology or technological culture or modern institutions, but then to try to imagine you know, how things might be different. I found Illich valuable both for the critique, which is unique to him, I think, the way he approaches the problems. He posits this notion of conviviality or the possibility of uh, convivial tools uh, as the alternative, as opposed to industrial tools and industrial institutions. What is the appropriate scale for a tool, for an institution? If it is meaningful to speak of a human scale, I think that that's an aspect of of conviviality. The human being is able to appear and to flourish and to be acknowledged as such. In other words, there's a scale appropriate to the human being. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. So hello, we are back to give a little short introduction to the next uh, episode where we have LM Sakasas, Michael Sakasas. Uh, who is the Associate Director of the Christian so- Study Center of Gainesville, Florida. And more importantly, he's the author of The Convivial Society, which is a newsletter that we are following very keenly about uh, technology, society, the good life, and also really the relationship between those different things and the evolution of society, I would say, in general. So we we have a quite open conversation around, uh, especially around, I would say, like a critique around modern institutions And Michael has studied a lot of thinkers like Ivan Illich, who was a philosopher and Roman Catholic priest, but also thinkers that we have cited before in the podcast, like Wendell Berry, and really tying together the knots of how did we end up here in a way? What what are the kind of institutions that we have built during the industrial age? How has it impacted things like how we work, uh, education, medicine, and in general, how we live uh, in society? Uh, And I think what was interesting for me here is that we now, uh, as we have been talking about before, we are almost at this kind of inflection points. We have enormous environmental and social pressure building up. And we can see how those institutions that have been built over the past decades are starting in a way to crumble or to to show that they might not be up to the task and all the challenges that we we are facing at the moment. Yeah, I I think one interesting thing that came up in this conversation with Michael is that uh, conviviality is not just a destructive uh, uh, comment on industrial society, but it's much more a constructive thesis of how we build an alternative uh, society, an alternative approach to producing value and the economy uh, that is based on a much more human scale, uh, it's based on empowerment, autonomy, interdependence, uh, some traits that, I must say, uh, reconnect with the ecosystem and platform thinking as uh, we are seeing playing out, you know, because if if we think about how platforms uh, empower uh, everyone to to be productive, to to produce value instead of just being a consumer of value, if we think about how this uh, self-management trends that we are seeing uh, coming up, uh, you know, in, in practices such as the 3EO, uh, our framework for entrepreneurial organizations and, and the work of hire and other companies, 
we see some trades of conviviality coming up. Uh, but I, I believe that this uh, interview will really spark some serious new ideas of uh, about how to approach the problem of organizing uh, in, in the 21st uh, century. At least it did it for me, for us. And so I uh, really encourage you to enjoy this chat uh, and uh, uh, come back to us with, with your ideas and your reflections. Thank you uh, for listening and enjoy the, the episode of today. So welcome, everybody. We, we are back at the Boundless Conversations uh, podcast uh, with me today. Uh, there is my usual co-host, Stina. Hello, everybody. And uh, we also have uh, Michael Sakasas. Is it, is it right, uh, Michael? That's how you say Sakasas? Perfect. Yes. <laughs> it's a Spanish descent, actually. So, yes, yeah, Sakasas. Uh, yeah, because, you know, we, we shared some uh, Latin roots uh, as I'm Italian. And uh, yes, that's right. thank you so much for, uh, for being with us. Uh, it's great to have you because we have been reading a lot from your newsletter uh, since uh, I think it was in the, over the summer or maybe before uh, that, uh, you know, I encountered your podcast uh, conversation with Justin Murphy. Mm-hmm. And that was an enlightening conversation uh, for our listeners. Essentially, we're talking about uh, some kind of introductory framing uh, of Illich's uh, work through the lens of the exceptional host that is Justin Murphy. Uh, it prompted me to really, as I said in the, in the preliminary conversation, to actually read uh, Illich's uh, work. And uh, since then, I've been uh, kind of juggling with this idea of uh, what does it mean to create convivial organizations, convivial platforms? How does it look like a, a convivial business model, right? I'm also aware of the uh, naivete of these questions. So uh, I'm sure that, uh, Michael, you, you can help us to explore further today. So before jumping into deeper uh, explorations, I would like if you can just give us a little brief uh, Uh, introduction and framing of why Illich's work is so fundamental to your research on technology and uh, uh, what pretty much conviviality means. Sure, I I will do my best. So part of what I appreciate about Illich, Illich is is known as a vicious critic. I think that's actually a line that um, appears in the blurb of one of his books, uh, that that he is a vicious critic of modernity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and his writing is certainly very, it has has an urgency to it. And he is unsparingly critical of certain institutions uh, and, and of certain aspects of technological culture, which is true. All that is true. But there's also something else in Illich, uh, which is that he he does have some vision for what an alternative might be. Um, and so, you know, I think very often one might encounter uh, all sorts of valid and, and powerful critiques of technology or technological culture or modern institutions. Uh, but then to try to imagine you know, how things might be different. I found Illich valuable both for the critique, which I, with the, it is unique to him, I think, the way he approaches the problems with, with tools by which he means, you know, both institutions and what we think of as technologies. He groups these together, uh, but then also offering us something to work towards. Uh, so he, he posits this notion of conviviality uh, or the possibility of uh, convivial tools uh, as the alternative that he wants to uh, commend to to readers, to those who would hear him out, uh, as as opposed to industrial tools and industrial institutions. So Illich, um, as your listeners will will know, was writing 
in the in the 1960s his his high watermark as far as how much uh, people were paying attention to him in the in the public conversation was probably in the 1970s and then he continued to write through the 80s and 90s um, but with less uh, public attention uh, being drawn to his work uh, so in, in the 70s where some of his classic books um, you know some of his classic books come out of the 70s medical nemesis which now is known as limits to medicine uh, tools for conviviality de-schooling society these these all arise, uh, you know, in in not quite as post-industrial cultures starting to emerge, but as we sort of see industrial society at its height in, in some regards. And so that's the the background. Conviviality encompasses, I think, a variety of different dimensions. On the one hand, I think it has to do with scale. What is the appropriate scale for a tool for an institution? If it is meaningful to speak of a human scale, I think that that's an aspect of of conviviality. So, you know, convivial in a convivial institution, say, or in a convivial organization, if you like, the human being uh, is able to appear and to flourish and to be acknowledged as such. In other words, there's a scale appropriate to the human being. There's an element, I think, as well of, uh, and, and I think this maybe is, is really uh, critical uh, of empowerment. So Illich was not anti-technology. He didn't even necessarily think that all industrial tools and technologies and systems were a problem. But he did believe that there were thresholds across which our tools and institutions crossed so that we're not thinking about whether something is bad or good, but whether it can remain within a certain spectrum uh, of, of use and size and scope and scale uh, that did not become what, what he would say, you know, it didn't become counterproductive and then eventually destructive. So one of the ways in which I think Illich saw that modern institutions and tools could become counterproductive and then even possibly destructive was in the way that they disempowered or uh, he didn't use this word. I use this word in talking about what you know. What his critique is is that they de-skilled human beings. The idea here is is that we the the, the individual would become. I should say here that Illich didn't like the word the individual, right? The person, the human being, would become dependent upon the tool or the institution, uh, rather than being empowered by it. So I, I think it's in either de-schooling or tools for conviviality that he talks about the need for tools to work with rather than tools that do the work for you. What that actually means in practice, of course, you know, um, you know, subject to, to discussion and conversation. Uh, but that that fundamental distinction between being empowered to do work that somebody finds a person finds meaningful and rewarding and satisfying, as against simply being offered tools that will eliminate the human involvement, eliminate the necessity for a person to demonstrate a measure of skill or mastery. So essentially, at the end of the progression, in Illich's view, the individual, the person, becomes a consumer, fundamentally a consumer of goods and services, uh, unable to do for for himself or herself uh, much of anything, or for their community, I think there's there's two sides to this for, for Illich. On the one hand, it is about the person, about the person being empowered, uh, having a measure of autonomy. I think conviviality also for Illich involved 
a measure of autonomy that the, the convivial tool is one which uh, a person can sort of pick up and exercise a measure of autonomy over uh, in terms of how it's used, the purposes to which it's put. You know, the American author Henry David Thoreau of the 19th century talked about, you know, the, the fear that we would become tools of our tools. And so a, a convivial tool is a tool that resists that. It doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for the, the user to become a servant of the tool. Mm-hmm. And so there's a measure of autonomy and independence that's part of what I think Illich understands by conviviality. But, and I think this is important, it's an autonomy for the sake of interdependence and community. Uh, and so there can be, I think, a temptation to read aspects of Illich's work uh, in, in the American sort of political context, a libertarian way, where uh, he, he, he just wants people to be able to to take care of themselves and, and fend for themselves and, and have autonomy for themselves. But, but actually it's always, I think for Illich paired with mutual interdependence uh, within communities, larger communities that then are able to sustain individuals and, and within which individuals can flourish. And so it's, it's not just about the person becoming more autonomous in their work but then about that contributing to the health of a community and, and a society. There are various dimensions then to the conviviality um, scale, a measure of autonomy in the service of interdependence. And I would say together that, and, and maybe you know, I'll say this and we can pause and you can you know, kind of dive a little deeper perhaps, but um, the physical presence, the body, was very important for Illich. Uh, that that people be present to one another, and that of course can take a, a variety of different shapes and forms depending on the institution we're talking about or the tool that we're, the technology we're talking about. But a, a, a convivial tool brought people together rather than alienated them from one another or even distanced them in 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 some way or another. So so in terms of following up uh, to to this uh, initial framing that you gave and uh, one key reflection that I was saving is it's about asking ourselves so are we really evolving towards more convivial organizations because if i think about when i've read Illich, of course I, I i said you know yes so platforms in a way they are empowering their participants they're giving them tools uh, to create their own, you know, self-entrepreneurs, for example, right? So, uh, so there is a trait of conviviality that these platforms have. Uh, in a, in a way, they enable uh, the consumer to become a producer, right? So that that's one thing that I felt. And uh, while I, you were also speaking, I, I felt like you know. And then I'm dealing with a lot with self-management, for example, in the work we are doing with companies, dealing with. Um, you know, these kind of teams that become entrepreneurial and autonomous inside the bigger organizations, then they kind of break bureaucracy, overcome bureaucracy. So again, this sounds like very convivial to me. And uh, and then you ended up with uh, this uh, c- clear reference to the joyfulness and, and relatedness that it's connected with this idea of conviviality in Illich. Uh, that also embeds, if you want, you know, this critique to technology, right? Because he says, yes, but do not cross these thresholds, as you said. Uh, and 
uh, this definitely connects with the idea of embodiment, right? I was looking at my notes while you were speaking and you ended up talking about the body. And, you know, I've wrote embodiment already because uh, a lot of the questions that we have uh, when we think about how organizations can evolve in the, in the future connects with this idea of uh, taking responsibility directly, right? So building, organizing instead of consuming organizing, right? It has an inherent uh, aspect of embodiment. For example, in, in recasting organizations from the uh, hyper-specialized uh, capital digital market uh, towards maybe producing fundamentals like food or, or energy or, 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 or care, for example. So, so my question would be, how do you feel? Are we really evolving towards there or we're still victims of this impossibility to think something different uh, that you always talk about, often talk about on, on the newsletter? That is a great question. And so part of me, I think, sometimes feels optimistic in that there are, you know, you, there are examples of certain trends or certain ways in which if we continue on the trajectory um, that Illich was outlining in the 70s in his critique, uh, Illich was pretty clear that uh, what lay before us then uh, was on the one hand, social disintegration, environmental degradation, and immense psychic costs uh, in, in what we today would call sort of mental well-being, you know, mental health uh, for individuals and, and for communities. So I think that in many respects, those three warnings or that threefold warning uh, is being borne out. Right? And I, I think, obviously, I'm observing this trends in, in the United States, which is, you know, my own milieu and what I'm most familiar with. Circumstances will be different uh, in different parts of the globe, of course. So acknowledging that, I would say that, you know, as I look around my own milieu and I think of, you know, on the one hand, the question, you know, uh, of, of environmental degradation, of social fracturing, and then also a, a kind of burgeoning mental health crisis, it seems to me that Illich was correct in predicting that, you know, this would be the outcome of the trajectory we're on. So I, I mentioned that because uh, part of what I, I think I see and part of what is hopeful is that there's a growing awareness uh, that there is this system that we have built for ourselves in, in, in sort of modern uh, industrialized societies and, and even post-industrial societies has a dimension to it which is fundamentally inhumane. We as human beings are integrated into a, a kind of techno-economic machinery that doesn't have our own interests in, in view. It doesn't have our well-being in view. It doesn't have our, our human flourishing in view, except insofar as we can be uh, productive cogs in the, the techno-economic machinery. Um, and so to the degree that people are recognizing uh, the costs uh, in terms of mental health, in terms of rising levels of burnout, a, a generalized sort of dissatisfaction uh, with conditions of life, continual social fragmentation, that there's a sense that something has gone astray. And, and, and certainly, of course, with the climate crisis, that something has gone astray and, and something needs to change, not just on the margins, Right. It's not. It's not going to be enough to sort of tweak uh, this or that part of of the system or the institution uh, or the society, but that something fundamental needs to to give way, and that we're looking for alternative modes of of being and relating um, and of living in the world. And so, are, is there some progress towards conviviality? Um, I think I would say that there's a, at least the awareness that there needs to 
be uh, some alternative towards which we're striving uh, for the sake of our own personal well-being, for the sake of our communities, for the sake of the globe, right? I do see certain ways in which uh, individuals or small communities are, are kind of taking up this challenge, uh, sometimes using digital tools to accomplish this. Uh, I, you know, I've been connected recently with some re- relatively small uh, but energetic groups of people who are trying to imagine uh, how we might uh, strive towards a more convivial mode of life, a more convivial society at different registers, uh, whether it's in terms of creativity, economic organization, community organization. Uh, and so I think there is you know, a bit of energy in that direction. Uh, a lot of it's stemming from uh, an awareness that something fundamental needs to, to change. Uh, but then, of course, the trajectories that we're trying to turn around are longstanding uh, and, you know, are, are deeply embedded in the existing structures of society and even our, our habits of mind and, and our, you know, assumptions about, you know, what we ought to be doing and who we are and what people are for. Uh, and so I, I, my sense is that, you know, change will be, if it is, you know, to be meaningful and sustainable, it will take a long time uh, to get there. Uh, so I, I'm both sort of modestly hopeful, but also I think uh, try, trying not to be naive about that and recognizing that, you know, there would be a lot of work uh, that would need to be done. I was thinking to maybe jump in, jumping in to bring into the conversation very early another quick uh, important point of Felix's uh, work. And then maybe, Sina, you can build on that. When you talk about this, uh, Michael, I'm thinking about the, the. I was thinking like, you know, maybe Illich is just a Cassandra, right? It's just telling us that's not going to work. You know, humans are, are ruining everything. Uh, industrialism is destroying everything. You know, and uh, I was looking into that from the perspective of complexity, mm-hmm. like from the perspective of, I mean, this is a complex system, right? Human society, uh, and it just goes through collapse. It's normal. Uh, you know, it's a transitional state and um, it can happen in complex systems. You know, it's not that equilibrium stands forever. And so, so I was thinking from this perspective and, and I was thinking, okay, and then what does it mean uh, from the perspective of uh, a person, right? You know, from the perspective of a person as an actor in society and, and in terms of how we build organizations and what kind of products and systems do we build? Uh, I was thinking that uh, most likely in this process, uh, something has to give, right? We have to let something go in the transition, in the new way of organizing that we can envision. Uh, And this may may be seen as connected with localism or shorter supply chains or uh, no more consumer societies and so on. And definitely connects with the idea of austerity as well that uh, Illich is, uh, has, so, right? So uh, even, I think, in terms of how he ap- approached the uh, medicine, like, you know, uh, that basically decided to avoid uh, care at some point, right? And it was always critical versus the modern, you know, you know I, I couldn't, I could not imagine what he would say about our ba- uh, mass vaccination programs right and, and so how maybe you can also connect a little bit in terms of what does it this idea of austerity and how maybe connects with the, how we organize and and uh, how we relate with each other and then stina i will leave it to you i promise 
Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I, I will say there is uh, an interesting community of people, global community of people connected around the work of Ivan Illich. Um, you know, it includes you know many people who knew him uh, well in this life, who are who are students of his, colleagues of his, and in fact, uh, Sajay Samuel um, has just launched a website uh, called Thinking After Illich. Uh, and, and there's a journal that is a part of that website. And their first issue just took up this question of um, a kind of intramural debate among uh, some of Illich's uh, heirs, some of Illich's uh, intellectual heirs, uh, about the COVID response, right, the, the governmental COVID response. Uh, and, there, and there are some um, that you know, would say that this is... Um, Certainly something Illich would be you know, absolutely critical of, uh, you know, a, a kind of, you know, in, on the, in the frame of biopolitics. This, but there's disagreement uh, on this scale. So I'll say this. This is my own way of, of thinking about, about this. In this, I want to be clear, I don't want in, the, in this claim to be speaking for Illich or, or for any other readers of Illich, right? But this is how I've thought about this. And maybe it might be a helpful segue. And, 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 and to come back then to the question of austerity, I think is important. Um, so... In the United States, we have all of a sudden, the, the um, federal government has just launched this program to send rapid tests out to everyone who requests them by mail. And this was, this is a, a very recent development. Um, you know, as I'm, I'm sure your listeners know, the response to the United States has been, you know, very mixed. It varies state by state. Uh, it's been a, a culture war issue. Every every COVID uh, mitigation policies that sort of become a culture war issue, which in the United States can be, you know, very counterproductive. But the the difference here was interesting because there were some, I, I think of Michael Mina in particular, who's been outspoken as an epidemiologist on the importance of rapid tests and, and why it took so long for the government here to support the deployment of and approval of rapid tests. I think this has been different in the UK. I, I suspect it's been different in, in uh, the European Union as well. But in the US, it was very long delayed. And and part of the reason, there was an article that appeared, I think, in Vanity Fair about this. Part of the, the, um, the reason or the reasoning was that uh, some people in the FDA and some medical professionals did not trust individuals to use the test correctly and then to act responsibly given the knowledge that the tests might give them, right? And so I thought this this is a, an entry point here for Illich's critique, right? If we, you know, the medical establishment, right, it's, very, it's a very large abstract thing, has many agencies and components, individual doctors, a lot. But, but if, if we think of the Institution of Modern Medicine along the lines of, of people not trusting individuals to make good judgments about their health, uh, to, to not be responsible users of tools that would empower them to make decisions about uh, whether to to go out or quarantine or whatever, then that I think becomes you know a, a very good illustration of of what Illich was critical of, and and I imagined all of a sudden a very different uh, COVID scenario right in the United States, very wishful thinking of course, but uh, where instead of trying to manage. And I think this is also you know, what, what Illich uh, is so critical of, right? The impulse to manage and to control, right? Instead of, of trying to manage people, institutions empowered them by giving them uh, what I think are essentially convivial tools, right? A good high-quality mask can be understood as a convivial tool in the sense that it, it, it is uh, subject to people's use. It is understandable. It, it operates at a human scale. You know, rapid tests are, are very easy to use. So, 
I'm, I'm going out on a little bit of a, a limb here, and I think that there are, there are definitely some readers village that would take issue with what I'm saying. But I, but I think that the point here is that there's a way of conceiving our tools and institutions in a way that, that empowers members of society, individuals, persons, to be responsible users of the, these tools, to be empowered. And then there's a way of conceiving of these institutions as simply managing and controlling individuals that cannot be trusted to do the right thing, um, that cannot be given responsibilities. And so, and, and that fosters, I think, its own kind of backlash. Um, so it creates, I think, a vicious cycle of, of a, a, you know, lack of social trust amongst institutional leaders and, uh, and lay people or the people who are ostensibly trying to be, you know, going to be served by these institutions. That's one, you know, dimension of that. Uh, but, but I think your, your comment about austerity is important because Illich did think that there, there would be costs, right? You, you cannot just go on, you know, consuming without limits, draining the earth's resources without limits and, and expect that things will be different, or the things will change or improve, right? And so I, I think he did envision the necessity of limits. This is heretical thinking, at least in, in the American context, that, that there ought to be any you know, limits, that, that, that we ought to place limits on production, limits on consumption. And yet, I, I think this is also part of what maybe in some pockets of society we are rediscovering, is that we are, as human beings, we, f- we may function better within a certain set of limits, that the limits are the conditions for our flourishing rather than our flourishing lying only in the transgression of these limits. I think what Illich was trying to, to offer was, was not a, a kind of technocratic, uh, you know, 2008 crisis, financial crisis vision of, of austerity, rather it was an austerity that recognized that what is going to be most rewarding, most satisfying uh, for, for a person uh, is not endless consumption, but maybe deep, meaningful relationships with uh, a local community, with friends, with another person, rather than uh, with a, a device that just channels endless entertainment to us, you know there are very many many ways we can iterate this uh, these conditions. But but that austerity, yes, meant the accepting of limits. But I think for Illich, at the end of that, would there would be a much more rewarding and satisfying human experience um, that we would we would discover that would be good for individuals, good for the environment, good for society. When listening to you about those questions that you mentioned around austerity and the idea that, you know, something's going to give and there is limits to perhaps the lifestyles and the, how we have been, let's say, shaping our economy and society over the past decades. And some other people might argue that, uh, you know, we have seen a lot of progress in society and that it's not necessarily the case that this progress will stall and that we we can find our way sort of out of the mess that we have created somehow. So it would be interesting to hear your your thoughts about that. Yeah, certainly. And and I would say, yeah, un- undoubtedly, society is a, is a highly complex reality, right? And so, it's, you know, even if we just limit it to, to technology or even to institutions, highly complex, uh, which is to say then that you're going to have uh, inevitably a mix of improvements, of progress. I think always in these cases, it's important to sort of 
clarify, you know, progress by what measure, uh, progress on, you know, according to what criteria, and depending on the measures you're looking at, uh, depending on the the criteria that you use, I think it would certainly be easy, and it would, it would I think, you know, Illich himself might agree that there has been progress along a variety of different vectors. And, and I want to be clear about this, because Illich was not, he did not believe, he was very explicit, that he did not believe that there was any golden age to return to, right? And I think when certain people hear a critique of, aspects of modern society or modern technology, what they immediately hear is somebody who wants to go back to some past, you know, that they want to undo um, modernity. Illich was very clear that this was not even feasible, right? It, it wasn't even thinkable. There is no going back, and, and, and it wouldn't even necessarily be desirable um, if it were possible, right? And I think uh, of Wendell Berry, I don't know if you're how, how familiar your listeners would be with with the American. Um, I've been quoting him too often on this podcast. <laughs> oh, okay, fantastic, right? So, yeah, Wendell Berry is is a kindred spirit here, I think, and and they they knew each other, both of them, um, and they both have this similar realization that the the recovery of certain kinds of limits, the re envisioning of what the good life amounts to and what a just society looks like, not only for the individual, but for the individual as one member of a larger community that includes all other living creatures in, in the land that is their home, right? That there there's a way of imagining what that will look like, how that can look like in the future. And it's not a matter of, of necessarily going back and undoing the gains that we have seen in you know in the modern context. The answer is, is yes, of, of course, there's been progress in any number of areas um, that we can think of, whether socially or politically or in terms of uh, equity in society. But there are obviously ways, I think, in which we can be doing things better, right? And and there are obviously ways, I think, in which we might argue that the, the prosperity for some has come at the cost, a, a great cost for others, right? So the, there is a, you know, an inequality in outcomes, uh, whether that's, a, you know, the global South relative to the global North uh, or the costs that we have been incurred when we think of the environment and climate change that, you know, we can't appropriately quite yet judge and measure, although it is fairly clear <laughs> that, you know, the, the balance is not tipping in our direction. And so it's not about, denying where genuine progress has happened. Uh, but it's, I think, about identifying where we can aim for something better and what that looks like and whether that just means uh, more consumption. Does that mean more consumption? Does that mean the unrelenting commercialization of all aspects of human experience? Uh, does that mean a further alienation of the human being from uh, his in her habitat on this planet, right? Does it mean a further enclosure of the individual within the, the the walls of his own home where he is alienated from his neighbors, her neighbors? Uh, and, and I don't think that it, it needs to be that way. And I, I think acknowledging that does not entail then uh, rejecting what may be some of the obvious gains that uh, none of us would, would want to have undone. That made me think when you, when you were talking about your um, installment that you did on notes on the metaverse, uh, one of your newsletters, and mm-hmm. and this seems to me like uh, somehow related to what you say that we 
how do we reconcile what we need to find back and that is very rooted and embedded in landscape and in and in place where we are and and the temptation to sort of create a better world separate from from what we we might see as sometimes problematic and and sort of we get disenfranchised from in some way just for a couple of days ago i think there was a review of um david chalmers new book uh in the guardian uh the review is in the guardian uh, david chalmers is an australian philosopher and um the book is called uh, reality plus and uh the the headline of the article was uh you know begins with a quote from from chalmers virtual reality is genuine reality so embrace it, uh, it says the philosopher. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about how there may be a future in which the you know, experience of virtual reality is, is as rewarding uh, as an experience of, of, you know, I would say non-virtual reality. And that yeah, maybe for, for many people that don't enjoy uh, a certain amount of privilege or, or resources in this life, that the virtual reality would actually be an improvement uh, upon their condition. I think he pays some lip service in this uh, article to the fact that, okay, maybe that's not the best way of, of thinking about it, because it, then it, it certainly creates the temptation, right, to treat uh, virtual reality as, a, as an escape and as a way of, of neglecting the existing inequalities and injustices uh, and, and offering, you know, this sort of escape via virtual reality from from lived conditions uh, on the one hand i think he you know there's there's this presumption right that these tools will become uh, so sophisticated that they will actually be something more than what is currently being offered to us which is you know a, a kind of an updated clunky version of second life there's a bit of hype there that needs to be treated with a great deal of skepticism but the very idea that in theory if we grant that these virtual worlds are possible that we should be encouraged to embrace it uh, because living in this disconnected way from non-virtual reality uh, would be an improvement for some. I, I think it just shouts to me a disconnect from reality, a pre- an actual profound disconnect from reality in the sense of, of what human beings need and what they want it's, and, and where, where they might find flourishing and, and how we might address you know, genuine inequalities and injustices in our present society. Uh, somewhere he says that, uh, you know, maybe it'll be a problem. I guess people will eventually need to to, to eat and drink and maybe come out for a little sun <laughs> as, as if, you know, this were... Annoyances. Yeah, and annoyances, right, yeah, <laughs> right. So I, I was, you know, before this question from Stina, that was uh, very, very on point because essentially the metaverse, if you want, represents like the sublimation of this super specialized uh, monocultural techno driven dream of society essentially and uh, on the other hand you were talking about uh, uh, doing good instead before right and uh, i was thinking about when it comes to doing good uh, and uh, for example the idea of progress right uh, we attach some positive uh, trait on it to be able to judge how positive something is, I think we need to be grounded into something. And uh, likely this is grounded in our culture. Uh, and for ben Wendell Berry, you know, culture is basically is agriculture and, and uh, agriculture is land. And basically this means that uh, the good, the progress uh, needs to be a plural idea, right? 
and uh, it entails that uh, people participate <laughs> in building it, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, it cannot be built for them to consume, I guess. And this is tremendously resonant with with the work of uh, of uh, Illich and and your research on technology. Mm-hmm. So, to some extent, I would love to know. What do you think about entrepreneurship? So the accountability of uh, having uh, this responsibility to make your convivial world, essentially. As I try to imagine for myself, right? So at one level, this becomes just a very personal thing. I, uh, I, I write about this stuff and obviously I try to think about, all right, what, what does this look like for me? What does this look like for my family, for my community? I think one of the questions I'm, I would be asking myself, right? If I understand myself as a consumer, first and foremost. And and let me say this, because you mentioned sort of the moral dimension. All of these questions end up being sort of fundamentally ethical questions in the sense that they involve some judgment about what is good, about what is right, what is just. And and then more broadly, just sort of this ancient question of what is the good life? Let me say, put it this way, it doesn't have to have, you know, one uh, only one iteration or one model, right? It can be a, a, a plurality of answers, but does it have certain common conditions? And perhaps more profoundly, Wendell Berry titles one of his collection of essays, What Are People For? And I think that's a, it's a wonderful summation of the issue at stake here. What are people for? Are we merely fleshy sites of consumption where our role in society and our happiness as creatures is just a matter of endless consumption of goods and services. I think if I put it that way, I, I want to say most people would say no. Uh, something is lacking in that, right? Uh, but the point is, is that the issues we're talking about, I think, force us to ask that question uh, and then to, to judge progress based upon the answers to that question. And, of course, the difficulty here uh, is that there, are, there may be many competing visions of what the answers to those questions may be, and then differential degrees of, of power with regards to who is able to implement or to live out uh, their own visions of what the good life may be. Obviously, some have a much greater power to, uh, you know, not only to live out their, their own understandings of those questions, uh, but also to impose the, their answer in some ways on others uh, because of their their role in society. And so acknowledging all of those complications, right? To come back to this question of, of consumption, you know, are there ways in which we can take greater responsibility over the production of the things that we need uh, for ourselves, right? This can be a small thing. Uh, it, you know, I don't, Barry would not say, you know, uh, that everybody needs to be a farmer. In fact, I've, I've heard him say this, right? Now, he doesn't say everybody needs to be a farmer, but are there ways of valuing the local farmer and the local ecosystem through the way that we relate to food, the way we think about food that are better for the community than what we presently do in the, in the current sort of agricultural model that, that dominates in, in modern societies. And, and what, what limits would that place on us? What would be the costs of that? But then what would be the rewards? And then, in, you know, taking the question of even food to a, you know, in a slightly different way, do we, this, this was early in 2020 when uh, everybody sort of was quarantined and found themselves at home and, and people rediscovered baking, right? And baking was this, breaking bread was a big thing for like a month. And 
I, you know, I, I thought that was interesting at the time. And, uh, and I don't, you know, obviously want to make too much of this, but the fact that some people discovered that there was a measure of joy and satisfaction in doing that, that in small ways, you know, not everybody uh, is equipped or, or necessarily needs to go out and, and found a company, right? Or, uh, or be an entrepreneur in the ways that we think of entrepreneurship or, or the culture of, of venture capital, right? But there are ways of, I wish I had maybe a better word for this, um, you know, to be entrepreneurial in, in, in a more personal and, and localized way, which is to reimagine what we can make for ourselves, what we can do for ourselves, uh, and not necessarily for profit either. This is a different, you know, another aspect of, of Illich's thinking, especially in the last two decades of his life, which is kind of carving out what he called these vernacular spheres, spheres that were not subject to market pressures and market demands and market the logic of the market. But are there ways that I can carve out new practices, uh, new ways of thinking about what I need, what my family needs, in order to recalibrate the pace of my life, my relationship to work, uh, my relationship to the community? There are, I think, a lot of different ways of, of bringing this, if you like, this sort of entrepreneurial mindset to bear on this question of re reimagining what a more convivial life might look like for myself and for, for my community. Does that make sense? I was thinking that there is this crazy uh, kind of interaction between this idea of ethics and uh, the kind of abductive nature that ethics has if you know what I mean, in terms of what's right, in terms of uh, respecting, for example, another uh, being, right? Uh, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, our needs that are related to essentially being open to uh, bearing the cost of uh, building that kind of systems, right? That are much more, as you said, you know, for example, local versus this global, globalized systems that harm the environment, like, because it's just, not ethical to do that, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, I think in Italy, we have this happy degrowth movement. I don't know if it's an international movement, but they, they, they're not just degrowth, they're happy degrowth. <laughs> That's very interesting because I was thinking, are we naive if we talk about these things and we imagine that we can do these things? And uh, I must say, probably if we do not do that, yes, we are naive. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of feeling that I that I'm left uh, there. But I'm I'm thinking about uh, this like in practical terms. We were exploring when we wrote our white paper on the new foundations of platforms and ecosystems. Some a project in a borough of, of London, which is very interesting, called Participatory City, and essentially they're experimenting with uh, collaborative product making, let's say, around something that the, the founder of this initiative, Tessie Britton, calls economy of essentials. Mm. So essentially bringing people together to create like pottery, clothes and uh, sharing food. I mean, those typical things. And it sounds to me like that is could be somewhat like a, a practical expression of the things that we're talking about. And is that so? Are we going to like mm-hmm. become more active in producing the things we need without necessarily having to revert to some notion of the golden age of whatever, like you mentioned before, it was, it's not necessarily uh, the idea. But is that something that you have been pondering also? What is the, 
this really like practical expression of all this. If I if I can just just click one thing before ending ending it to you, Michael. But this very idea that you can have something like participatory city in the center of London to think about this as a transformative thing or as something that is on par of what's uh, what's going to entail to you know reimagine our relationship with with uh, with technology. I'm very curious as to what what shape these possibilities might take. Commun- this is a great example that you gave, uh, Stina, about uh, this, this group in London, right, that, that are experimenting with uh, alternative modes of production distribution. Um, you mentioned the happy degrowth. Uh, I, I think of, um, you know, another sort of loosely connected online community with, with real-world manifestations um, that kind of calls refers to themselves as, uh, you know, uh, doomer optimists or optimistic doomers. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we put ourselves, I think I put myself inside that movement. Uh, I also wrote one of the manifestos, so. <laughs> oh, wow, okay, well, there you go, yeah. I think there's something exciting about that, and, and there's something hopeful about that. And I, I totally get this idea that, you know, you look at sort of, the, you know, the scale of, of the problems that we are facing. You, then you look at, a, a, you know, a little tiny community in the center of London or, you know, uh, you know a, a smattering of people, you know, trying to figure out how to produce for themselves, again, some essentials of life uh, in various contexts or, you, you know, these various groups that are experimenting with these new modes of life. And, and it's easy to sort of think this is this is a little naive, right? This seems like a totally disproportionate response to the scale of the problems we're facing. You know, I like what you, you said, Simone. You know, I think I put it similar. I think it's naive not to imagine that it has to begin that way. You know, because I'm not sure what the, you know, necessarily what the alternative would be. Uh, and so then we're, we're talking about, you know, timescales uh, at which, we might see meaningful change, a, a, a turning of the ship, as it were. I suspect that, yeah, there are a lot of things uh, historically that have begun in very modest ways. But if they prove their worth, uh, if they answer to some genuine human needs, if fortune comes and visits them as well, they, they grow into larger movements and, and have the potential to be transformative and sustainable over time. Uh, and so I'm definitely much more interested than I was even a couple of years ago in in finding and considering these groups. And and I, I understand my own limits in this. Um, I need others to imagine these possibilities. You know, I, I'm you know, perfectly ready to admit that I'm my own thinking and, and work and writing has been focused on sort of identifying, all right, what are the issues? What are the problems? What's going wrong? Uh, and I'm glad to see others uh, experiment and try to find the the workable life-giving solutions uh, to this. And I, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, very curious in, in you know, locating those communities, uh, learning from them, and I'm encouraged by their work. Yeah, I mean, at least they, they are doing it. So, uh, thank, I mean, uh, Michael, it's, it's been a crazy conversation and, and we, we, we want to give you just uh, maybe a, a final reflection, uh, if you want to close, and uh, and then uh, tell us a bit more about where we can find, I mean, the people that listen to the podcast, where they can find your work and support your work, your research. Uh, uh, so, so again, that, that, thanks for the great conversation. Maybe you can, you can help us uh, close it. Yeah, certainly. No, I, I thank you. You know, it's um, a pleasure to have these conversations. You know, I always feel you know a bit in, inadequate to the task, especially when it comes to sort of imagining 
alternatives and better futures and, um, and, and grappling with the scale of the problems that we face. But I, I, I do think uh, Illich gives us at least you know, one model to look to that we can build upon. Um, I've been heartened by the degree to which uh, Illich's work seems to be spreading and growing, a little bit of revival of interest in Illich's work. And I would certainly encourage, you know, listeners to, to check it out. You know, I, I think we are, to some degree, going to have to kind of fight for what we have understood as the human, uh, the embodied and fleshed communal human being, and the place of the human in a, in, a, in a society that in large measure has ignored the limits that are implicit in the human condition. And I, I think we're going to increasingly be faced with more and more radical challenges to that, um, that, that, that question of preserving the human amidst our society. But in, that in that, maybe in that challenge, some may find the, the encouragement to, to re-appreciate or rediscover the possibilities of the human condition, the possibilities are flourishing within within its limits and, and the beauty of it and the goodness of it. So that's my, my parting shot, I guess, as it were. And I, uh, I write about a lot of this stuff uh, in a newsletter called The Convivial Society, obviously with a nod to uh, Illich's Tools for Conviviality, but also with a nod to Jacques Ellul, uh, another thinker who's been very important uh, for me. Uh, so if, if listeners want to check that out, the Convivial Society, it's on Substack. Uh, everything I write is is public. And like I like to say, I don't uh, want any customers. But if uh, somebody wants to support and become a, a patron of the work, that, that's always appreciated. But all the work is free and, and there's no paywall. And I have to say that you really convinced uh, me with reading out your uh, newsletters. Uh, I found that a really engaging way of uh, of sharing this in, a, in an accessible format depending on where you are in your in your day and how you want to consume it oh thank you yeah good i'm glad i know i i, I sometimes don't have the uh, the bandwidth to do that but i try to do that as much as possible yeah thank you i'm glad to hear that so i mean it was it was amazing uh so thank you so much again uh, michael it was a pleasure yeah thank you so much for having me on thank you stina uh listeners please today tonight put down your phone enjoy the company of your family and catch up soon thank you for listening to this episode of the boundless conversations podcast we truly hope you enjoyed the show if you did please share this episode on social media review our show on any major distribution platform and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases stay tuned on boundless.io for our latest news and updates There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.